So um, I thought we'd just start by uh, both of us talking a little bit about how, uh, why we became academics, what we like about the job and, and how, and, you know, and, and our roots. So um, Kathy, do you want to start with that? And then I'll say a little bit more and then we'll go through kind of the nuts and bolts of that and then talk a little bit about what you can do as a student um, um, uh, uh, if you're thinking about this career path. Yeah, so I was gonna make you go first because I'm genuinely curious, but fine, if you call on me, I will speak. Um, so um, this is my first semester here at UVA. So I haven't gotten to meet a lot of you. So I teach business law. Um, so I'm teaching corporations this semester. Um, I, um, how did I, so the question is, how did I end up being, deciding to be a law professor? Um, I didn't actually, when I was in law school, I came to one of these events, except there was free pizza. And I really wanted the free pizza, actually. Um, so I went to the event. And I remember uh, being like, yeah, whatever. Like, I'm just going to go to a law firm. I think it was a 2L, maybe. I was like, I'm going to go to Skadden, and I'm going to make a lot of money. And then I'm going to go in-house. And that's probably what a lot of people are thinking, um, especially since we don't offer you um, food bribes to come here now anymore. Um, but... Um, so I got to this thing and the good thing is I got some background about like what I was supposed to do if I wanted to be a professor. And then I just tucked that away in my mind and went off um, on my merry way. Um, I did one independent research project when I was a law student and I probably told the professor that I was interested in academia because he remembers this, but really I just really needed to finish my student note. Um, and I thought that if a professor was grading me, I would uh, be more incentivized to finish it in a timely manner. So um, that's what happened. Then I went to practice and like many people who go into practice, I had some time of, I had some soul searching um, about what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Um, I, at some point, decided that I wanted to be a professor because I wanted to, I really enjoyed mentoring and working with junior people and working with legal assistants, and I really wanted to work on bigger questions faster. I wasn't really sure how I was going to become an academic, um, but I thought, like, the first thing I could do was I would apply for a fellowship that I saw, like, randomly come up. It was, like, off-cycle. I applied for this fellowship, no expectations, didn't think I would get it. Um, it was the only one I applied to. I applied over like a weekend. That weekend I billed 102 hours, um, but I uh, I uh, still did it. And um, and then I got it uh, and I was like, well, this must be a sign. So I guess I'm gonna give this a shot and see how it goes. Um, and I, I kind of say this in like a self-deprecating way, but honestly, like when I got it, I was like, this is it. I'm going to do this. Like, I know how hard it is to get this job. Like, I know how lucky I am to get this fellowship. Like, this is insane. Like, I remember calling some of my old professors and being like, what ha just happened? And they were like, you just say thank you and you take it and you go and you try your best and hopefully you'll become a professor. And I was like, thank you. I will move to Palo Alto and I will be paid $55,000 a year and I will make it happen. Let's go. And that's what I did. I figured like the worst thing that could happen is I would do my fellowship for a couple of years and if I was really bad at it or something, like, I mean, at least I'd live in California for two years and then I would, you know, go work at Cooley or something like that. Like, like it wasn't gonna be the end of my life if I tried this for two years and it didn't work. And I, I was really lucky that it did work, so. The end. I think, I think you're, I think Rich, you're uh, muted. You just, you just stumble into academia and here you are, you, you it's all just, <laughs> That's not quite how it works, uh, uh, 
Um, and, and I think. Sorry, that wasn't the answer you were looking for. <laughs> no, it is. It is. In fact, there are lots of roots, and so that's one of them. And it's in fact a root. Um, I think more common for folks thinking about, say, corporate law, or in some cases, tax law, or other areas in which. In fact, most of those folks come out of law school and then go into practice um, uh, and then transition to law, uh, to law teaching through a fellowship opportunity like the one that Professor Wang is talking about, which is um, there are a bunch of these kinds of fellowships. You just apply a number of years. How many years was it, Kathy, that you so were in practice? Before I was in practice for three years. Okay. Um, and I and I will say that like so to back up I was in practice for three years and I was a fellow for two and a half years and I always like um, it sounds like it was kind of an accident but there were the pieces were always kind of there right so um, when I was in college I had this little side hustle where I edited academic papers for business professors who weren't like native English speakers so I'd actually read a lot of research by accident by being like this copy editor having this copy editor job. Um, I was a research assistant for a professor in um, undergrad, and I did that for four years, um, mostly just doing like citations and stuff like that. Um, so I'd always done that stuff. I just never really imagined that as a career for myself. Um, and then it kind of was. And it, it, I mean, the pieces were all there. I just didn't see it. And in law school, would you say you did some things towards that end or not really specifically? Did you publish anything? Did you work I, on a journal? What kind of stuff did you do there? Yeah, so I was an editor of, um, of an international law journal. Um, I wrote a student note, but I didn't try to get it published because I didn't finish it until I was like a second semester 3L. Um, I did an independent research, which um, caused me to get to know um, Tom Ginsburg, who is like a really well-known comparative constitutional law scholar. And I just didn't know that at the time. I'd taken a couple classes with him and I thought he was nice. And I was writing a paper on an international law topic. So I asked him to supervise me. And I must have made up some story about why I wanted him to supervise me on this independent research um, because he remembered it. And he was like, yeah, I remember you were interested in this and you did a good job and whatever. And I was like, oh, well, I really just needed to get it done. Um, and I was an RA for a couple of professors as well, but I just don't like, like, like I said, like I just kind of like check the boxes as I went along. Um, but I, it, like, if you look back, it looks very planned, um, but it really wasn't planned. I just got very lucky. I just kind of picked these things up. Yeah, after graduation, did you go right to the firm or did you do any clerking or anything? In I didn't clerk. And I would say usually when I advise people who are thinking about an academic career, I would say that there's a collection. The thing you almost, you have to go to law school, right? You have to go to law school and you have to, almost everybody gets a fellowship at some point as their kind of capstone item for a couple of years. And that's like where you go to a school, not necessarily the school where you got your degree, um, and you do research, you get paid a very small amount of money and you get do research and you teach potentially for, you know, somewhere between two and four years is average, I would say. So those are the two things you have to pick up in your buffet. You have to pick up law school and you have to pick up a fellowship almost always. And then you can pick up a combination of other things like, um, you know, you could get a PhD, you could get some practice experience, you could do a clerkship and you have to pick up some combination of these things to like fill your plate. And then, um, and then at some point your plate is full and then you go on the market. It's a buffet. 
It's a buffet. It's a joyful, happy thing. It's a buffet. So, um, so the two of us are folks. Uh, uh, just to to start on my story a little bit, um, we're both folks with just JD degrees. Uh, uh, maybe similar to a bunch of you here. Um, we do have on our faculty a number of faculty. Uh, I think it's. I don't know what the numbers look like. I would think a third maybe who have JDs and PhDs. The JD-PhD route involves usually going to law school first, either first or second, usually first, I think, and then doing the PhD as an adjunct to that uh, experience. So doing two years of law school, then doing, say, two years in the in the master's program that leads to a dissertation. And so that is for the the general run of the of a research university the traditional route to getting into academia. You did a you do a PhD and then you'd go you'd go get a teaching job. In in traditionally in law schools you didn't need to get a PhD you got a JD and then you maybe clerked or did some other things or worked and then you came back to the academy. And often law schools would just take their best student, right? Their number one student, they'd turn them into a law professor. That's how Alan Dershowitz became a law professor at Harvard. He was the smartest, he clerked, he clerked for the Supreme Court and he goes back to teach. He didn't write anything, he didn't do anything else. That has changed over time. What we now see are PhDs in the market, but again, JDs are still, I think, dominant. And you can come out of JD, come out of a practice and still and still go into academia. You don't need the PhD, but if one is interested in the PhD, there are routes, ways to, to, to do that um, uh, uh, and then go onto the market. It's a, it's a, it's a more conventional route. My route to, to academia was, uh, I was thinking about academia after uh, undergraduate, I did a I did a fellowship abroad for a year, which got me a master's. If I had been a little more savvy about it, I would have I, I would have gotten you know spent two years and got kind of a British PhD kind of equivalent. But I wasn't that savvy about it. I just went, did a year, and got a master's in legal and political theory. It was mostly to live in London and and to see what that life, what that intellectual life might be like. I came back, went to law school, um, then clerked after law school for a judge on the Third Circuit. Clerking is a signal that you're kind of a serious student. It's not again necessary, depending on what field you're in, but like lots of signals, it it um, uh, it it can be helpful in any kind of job search, and it's also a pretty cool job to have. And I encourage people to do it if they're interested. Um, it's nice to see the law get made from that perspective. After clerking, I went to a law firm that I had summered at because I thought I wanted to be a trial lawyer. It's, it's a relatively small but private side trial law firm, but it did a lot of different kinds of litigation. And I spent two years there um, and wasn't quite sure uh, what the next step would be. Uh, I met my spouse-to-be, who turns out to be the dean now, uh, and she was pursuing both a JD and a PhD. She was pursuing a JD um, uh, uh, um, at Yale, and she was pursuing a PhD at Princeton in history at the same time when we met. So she was on the 
career on the on the academic career track. And so we needed to move to New Haven, Connecticut, so that she could finish her law degree part of her education. And so I, I decided at that point that was a that might be a way to for me to transition as well. And I, I started by teaching legal writing, really one section of legal writing at Quinnipiac University at the law school there. That's it, up in Hamden, Connecticut, down the street from Yale in New Haven, uh, outside of New Haven. And they needed a legal writing instructor. They were willing to hire me. I didn't, um, it did not pay anything. <laughs> <laughs> It's like three thousand dollars or something, yeah, no, right? Like ridiculous. But uh, uh, but I had some money saved up from the, from the firm, and the firm continued to let me work for them a little bit um, remotely. And because um, they were willing to pay me enough, I was able to. We were able to survive as basically graduate students. So that was my transition. I used that to the, the, that year and the next year to write something, which is what you have to do to go on the market. You have to have some kind of, pub, not a publication necessarily, but at least a draft. Lots of people now have more than one draft. So that's why this these fellowships are important. So for me, teaching legal writing, and then they let me teach some substantive classes the next year was a way of having basically a fellowship in the way that Kathy describes. Um, and, so, uh, and so then we jointly, uh, the dean and myself went on the market together, and we were lucky enough to get, um, um, we looked all over the country to find jobs in the same place, and we were lucky enough to get jobs in the same place here. Um, at that point, when they when you go on the market, what you do is you basically, uh, there's a process whereby you just apply to all the law schools in the country. And the way you do this is through uh, the, the American Association of, uh, the Association of American Law Schools runs a entry level teaching market process, which starts uh, in, uh, in the summer. There and then uh, they, they, they send out your, basically your resume or a version of your resume to all the law schools in the country. And those law schools have committees that meet and they look at your resumes. And then if they want to talk more to you, they call you and they set up a 20 minute interview in a hotel room in Washington, DC, though not this year because of the pandemic. So all those interviews are being done on Zoom. You go to this hotel room, it's sort of like um, um, OGIs and you talk to them for 20 minutes and then if they like you then they call you back for what's called a job talk and that job talk is usually an all-day process again usually in person though we're not doing them in person anymore in which you present a paper to the faculty you talk to a bunch of faculty in a bunch of different interviews you might talk to some students and then um, and then they decide whether they want to give you a job or not that's the process. It's actually pretty straightforward and fairly clean. Getting there is a little trickier. And getting there, again, does require um, um, uh, having, uh, in, for most law schools, not all, but for most, and this is for, again, tenure track research faculty, not necessarily clinical faculty, um, tenure track teaching faculty, 
they need to see that you are you are willing to do scholarship and the way they do that is by you having giving them a draft or having a couple of drafts out there some of which might be published some of which might not be my piece that i presented to the faculty at virginia was not published um, and um, it didn't get picked up until after i got a job so i had done a note in law school I'm not sure how much that weighed um, in their decision making. I had clerked for a judge, but otherwise the evidence of my scholarly potential was not necessarily high, um, or at least there weren't a ton of indicia of it, um, at least at the outset. Okay, so um, um, what kind of things should, should you do, um, should you do in law school if you're kind of have this in the back of your head. Well, um, Kathy, you wanna talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I should also say that at any point, if you all feel like you have questions, you're welcome to pop them into the chat or raise your hand or like, um, or if you don't want to like, you know, if you have a question that you'd rather just like ask, you can always like chat to one of us and we'll just read it out loud. Um, and I'm sure that if you have the question that other people will as well. Um, what you should do in law school is, I think, I think there's basically two things, right? So one is try to do research or get a sense of what research looks like. And you can do this in a lot of ways. You can um, do an independent research. Um, you can, um, you can uh, be an RA for a professor. You can take seminar classes where you have to write papers. But those are some ways that you just want to get an idea of what the research process looks like. Um, I will say that like everything, I agree with everything that Professor Schreiger has said, um, but like everything in academia and everything in all places, like it's a little quirky, right? So right, when you probably started law school, people are talking about outlining and you're like, what's outlining? And you're like, no, just it just means taking your notes and putting them into one very large word document, like, but it has a special name. So when you go on the academic job market, people have all these different things. Like they'll talk about like the meat market, which is just like, national OCIs for all law professors or like the FAR form. It just means like answer questions and we will spit out a resume. Like there are all sorts of little quirks and writing research articles is also quirky. So if you're thinking about who to take a seminar class from or who to ask for an independent study, what you wanna do is try to find somebody who you think will edit the crap out of your work. And like, we'll give you lots of hard to hear comments about how things should be. And then confide in that person that you're really writing this, not just to like try to get an A in the class, which would be awesome, but you're really trying to write it so that you can start building your portfolio because in the back of your mind, you're thinking about being a law professor. And then they will kind of direct you toward topics that are less like just like a great student paper for a seminar and more toward um, being a law professor. So that's thing number one, um, research. The other thing I would do is just get to know your professors. It's not like fatal if you don't really like, you don't have to like hang out all the time, but there, you know, when somebody should, somebody should see your name in like three or four years and be like, yeah, yeah, that person was my RA or that person was in my class and did really well. Like somebody should remember you. Um, because at some point when you go onto the job market, you'll need references and you'll need people like Professor Schreier or me to call people and say like, you know, like Alex is really great. Like he really like, you know, he would definitely go to, you know, the University of Connecticut. Um, and then other than that, you can collect a bunch of other things, right? So 
Um, you can be on law review. I don't think, I think, you know, probably 80, 80 to 90% of candidates on the market were on law review or on some other journal. Uh, many people write student notes. Um, what else? That's kind of, that's kind of it, right? Like publish, collect as many, as, as with any legal job, collect as many, you know, fancy goodies as you can. But if you don't collect that many, like it's not the end of the world, just collect as many as you can while staying sane and, you know, uh, get to know your professors. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, you know, what I say to folks is if you're a first year student, focus on doing as well as you can in your classes. That's helpful for any future jobs. Um, uh, um, that's gonna also, uh, uh, get get you noticed by some professors um, who might be helpful to you in writing recommendations for the various stages at which you would need recommendations. That's summer jobs, but also um, fellowships. People needs need uh, uh, needs need uh, need writers basically. And then I think in your second and third year, you should think, yeah, a lot about where can I get some writing experience, writing and researching experience. And again, we do at UVA, you can do independent studies, research projects, classes with, with uh, obviously with uh, uh, longer papers. And all of that is, is very helpful. And sometimes those papers then become the origins or the, the beginnings of the, of the larger research project that you will work on, say, in a fellowship or after you've come out of practice um, for, your, for your first job talk paper. So my first paper was about a topic that I had thought a lot about in law school um, uh, because I took a local government law class that was really interesting. And so that became the thing that I wanted to do after. Um, after do you love it? What's that? Do you love your first paper? How do you feel about your first paper? I think it's still awesome. Really? No, I want to light my first paper on I fire. To read I try not to go back and read it. It's not the paper I go back and read. No, definitely. Like I always tell people like the number of academics who will agree with this. I just want to see if you agree with this. Like is hell being stuck on a deserted island with only your first paper as reading material? The first paper is tricky. I, you know, I, although um, I was, you know, the first paper was more um, in some ways more interesting because I wasn't as constrained by a whole set of things. And so- I was, You didn't know enough, right? Yeah, you didn't know enough to know that you were wrong. Yeah, so, so I- So it was more interesting. But I'll tell you how the first paper went, just because this is helpful too, I think, to folks thinking about this. So I went to Harvard Law School and at Harvard Law School is a very big place. You don't really get to know your professors because many of them, there are a few that care about you, but many of them do not. I don't know if that's changed in the last 20 years, but it was the case then. These are very large classes. You went to office hours, they barely recognize you. It's very, very different from UVA where I, I would hope at least that folks are having experience where they, they get to know at least some of their professors. And so then I went and clerked and then I practiced for two, two and a half years. And then I decided I'm going on the teaching market, but I didn't know who to talk to. I didn't have any um, buddies on the Harvard Law faculty. I really didn't know anybody very well. I'd taken you didn't reach, reach out to like Alan Dershowitz. Yeah, I had a couple of seminars, but they were, I, I didn't have a lot of small classes. So I was interested in local government law. So I reached out to a guy named Jerry Frug, who uh, a prominent local government law professor. I was in a class with 150 students with him. 
I had done well in the class. I got an A, but 150 students. And I said, you know, I'm, I, was your, I was in your class, but I don't think you'll know me, but I'm interested in going on the market. Here's my situation. Would you, you know, look at a draft that I'm working on, which is in this field? And he was kind enough to say yes. So I sent him a draft. I was working furiously on this draft. I sent him this draft. Um, I was very proud of it. And then he, then we talked on the phone, which was kind of him to do. And he was gentle, but not too gentle about the draft, and rightly so, because um, it was terrible. It was a terrible, terrible paper, really, really bad. And he kind of let me know that. And he didn't have to tell me anything. He could have been like, whatever. And I went and I rewrote the whole thing, just sort of, I, the, I did, some of the ideas were still in there, but basically rewrote the whole thing. So I had written a 60 page draft with lots of footnotes. He looked at it and it was embarrassing. And so I rewrote it and the, the, the second one was much better. And he looked at that one too. And he said, this is, you know, and gave me comments on that. And that was, and then I said, well, would you, would you be willing to, you know, recommend me? Because you have to put down some recommenders. Uh, uh, um, and he said, sure, that was it. That's what he knew about me, uh, but he was willing to do that. And the UVA professors are much more willing we are, oh, I tell this to everybody, listen, even if you didn't know them that well, or you were in a class of 30 or 60, um, if you did decently in the class, if, if they've recommended you before, let's say for some other things, or even if they haven't, we want to we help you succeed, and we, we, we want to help you get academic jobs, so you, 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 you're going to reach out to us, and you're going to do it because you're not going to go right into academia after either graduating from law school or clerking, you're going to go into academia two or three or five years out from that. And so you will be alums who are reaching back um, in order to talk to the faculty about how to do this. And so the reason we're talking to you now is because we want you to have that in the back of your head. So in three, five, seven years, you'll remember this conversation and you'll come back and let us know. Um, so we have some questions in the chat. I haven't, I haven't get, uh, Professor Wang, are you on top of these chat? Uh, yeah, so I, I, why don't I pitch one to you? Here we go. Yeah. Does the pedigree of your law firm help with the hiring process for VAPs and fellowships? So VAPs, by the way, are visiting assistant professorships. So I think some schools, I mean, I don't perceive a big difference, by the way, between VAPs and fellowships. Some schools call them VAPs, some schools call them fellowships. They're generally a low paid position in which you do research, you get a Westlaw password, an office or a cubicle, and you might teach a class or two. So that's what a VAP is or fellowship. Um, and the question is, does your law firm help with the hiring of that? I think not too much. If your firm is like, if you were like at a Supreme Court practice at a, if you're like, you wanna do a first amendment, you wanna do first amendment and you were, you know, a Supreme Court lawyer at a firm with a very strong First Amendment practice, then yes, right? So, uh, but otherwise, I don't think like there's a big difference between Sullivan and Sidley and, you know, Simpson and whatever. Yeah, there's, you know, there are signals of, um, I, I think that's right. Um, um, there are, there are, the firm gives a signal as to your, your success in some ways of your success in law school. So, um, 
um, to the extent that there there is a there, there is a question questions could be raised if you're at a, a kind of a regional firm that no one recognizes the name of type of thing um, but only if that's a signal that's incompatible with the the application process um, it's you know to the to the fellowship itself you do not have to go to a law firm you can go do lots of different things um, in order to set yourself up for a fellowship. And in fact, some of those other things might be more interesting to the fellowship, um, you know, the, 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 the ones who are doing the hiring on the fellowship end. But again, with lots of things, um, there is some hierarchy in the law and it does have some effects. It's not, again, I don't think as Professor Wang said, I don't think it draws fine distinctions between two, say, large law firms in New York City. It might draw some other distinctions between, say, a large law firm in New York City and, and a small law firm in Cleveland, depending on what that is. There's I think that's some, right. I mean, yeah. I, I practice at Skadden and I'm an M&A yeah. person and Skadden is an M&A firm. Yeah. And so that's something I trade on. But if I were a First Amendment scholar, it wouldn't have mattered if I had gone to Skadden or Sullivan or whatever, unless I was in a Supreme Court practice, right? Like if you were like, I was at Wilmer Hale doing the Supreme Court practice and did like these big First Amendment cases, then that would become, but you know, if you if you were a First Amendment scholar and you didn't practice at a big practice like that, that would just not be something that you emphasize. That wouldn't be part of the plate that you show, that you will show people. Um, the next question is, did you both write your drafts or research them while in practice? How did you balance your time? So I, wrote my draft for my fellowship, like my fellowship writing sample when I was in law school. I, it was my independent study from law school. Um, and I kind of like, you know, copy edited it and then sent it. Um, it was not at all, it was about, um, it was about CTAC arbitration and like the convergence and arbitral rules. Um, so it wasn't at all about um, what I do now. Um, and then I wrote my, all I wrote, uh, I wrote, I published one and a half papers when I was in my fellowship and then had another draft. And I did that during my fellowship and I wasn't practicing. So people, once you switch over to the fellowship, you're generally not practicing. So that was kind of a hundred percent of what I was spending my time on was um, writing and some random fellowship stuff. What about you? Yeah, it's, 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 um, it's almost impossible to write while you're in legal practice. I just don't see, there are some folks that have done it. We, we actually have some folks we're advising on the market now who, who've done some writing and it's quite impressive because it does take a long time to get your head wrapped around a, a paper topic and then do, do a nice job. So it's very, very hard to balance that time. And that's why we see lots of fellowship, uh, uh, lots of fellowships and people moving into fellowships as a, as a way to transition. Um, yeah, uh, it's not impossible. So what I have seen some folks uh, kind of save up a lot of money in a in a in a law firm and then take four months off or something like that. But even that's that can be a little tricky, um, and then just work very exclusively on a draft. Um, so that's a that's a possibility too. But most people do some kind of fellowshipy type of thing for the transition. I think it's incredibly hard in, in particular because like <clears throat> if I asked you, like if you were like a student, let's say you majored in math in undergrad and I was like, 
now let's write some math papers, like write some math papers and publish them. It'd just be incredibly hard to know what the norms are, like when you submit things for publication, like what kind of lit review you should have, like, you know, all of this kind of like norms and stuff. It's just stuff that's very hard to get until you're in a fellowship in like a specific, with some particular time and space to like think about those issues. Um, it's just very hard to produce scholarship in a vacuum by yourself doing it as a second job. So I think maybe, um, and I do think like the monetary challenge, like the financial issues are real. So if you're kind of thinking about how to plan for things, um, like one totally, one of the reasons I worked at a firm was that um, like I needed to have some money because I had a lot of student loans. <laughs> so I did that and then kind of like partially self-funded my, fellow my fellowship. Um, next question is, to clarify, is the trend now that you don't necessarily have to clerk if you're interested in teaching tax or corporate law, if you're in practice for a longer time, is that helpful? Ooh. Um, so tax, for all tax law questions, I would direct you to Professor Mason or Professor Hayashi um, or Professor Curtis, one of the tax people. Um, and because I think tax is like its own beast, they have like their own separate additional degrees that you get and all of this other stuff. So tax is like a different beast. So I can talk about corporate. I would say that um, um, in corporate lawyers in general are like transactional lawyers are less likely to have clerked to begin with, right? So litigators tend to clerk if they're like, if you're graduating near the top of your class, you'll try to get a clerkship. Um, and transactional lawyers, like I don't, I think I knew like one transactional lawyer who clerked on Delaware Chancery. So I think if you're going into a transactional field, it's probably less important. Um, in terms of how long you're in practice, I also wouldn't stay in practice for too long. I would say that when you stay in practice for too long, you get, you get good at that other job and it's harder to retrain your brain to be good at this job. So that job is like client service, it's like arguing for a particular thing, designing deals. This job is like a, like, a rabble rouser kind of thing, right? You're talking about how things are wrong and you hate them and like they should be this other way. So I wouldn't stay in practice for too long. I think that three or five, three to five years is five is probably, probably you wanna max out there. Like you don't wanna be in practice for like 12 years. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I agree with that. So yeah, the corporate tax folks, um, Again, not as important to clerk. I think that's right. Um, and important to have some experience in those fields to some degree. Um, and again, the yeah, the window that people talk about is kind of five to seven years out at the most. Um, if you if you stay out 10 or 12 years, then a lot of folks just think that you got tired of being a lawyer uh, in practice and you want to kind of retire to a to an academic job. And that's the last thing that that that, um, yeah. that we get we're very easily offended like that we're like you think you can retire and have our job no yeah no way but you know that being said there's there there, there are folks who, who transition after a longer period of time um oh i should say one quick thing here is that if you are interested in transactional work um whether or not you want to be a professor, um, there are clerkships out there for you. Um, Delaware Chancery clerkships are really great for people who are interested in corporate. So if you're interested in a Delaware Chancery clerkship, please talk to me or talk to Ruth Payne or talk to whoever you're taking corporations with. Um, I think we would love to help you get one of those. Yeah, and again, the clerkship, like lots of the goodies that you sort of collect in the buffet, 
um, is, you know, a signal of seriousness and potential. And that goes to the next question, I think. The, uh, I notice most professors are circuit or SCOTUS clerks. Um, is a clerkship at the U.S. District Court or State Supreme Court not as helpful? Or does this depend on the school field of scholarship? Um, again, I think as with lots of elite jobs, the there is a hierarchy. So if you're a Supreme Court clerk, that's really good. <laughs> Circuit courts and the federal federal district courts, sometimes it depends on the judge. So uh, um, there are more elite district court clerkships. There's that are that look like the equivalent of circuit court clerkships. It just depends. Lots of people are stacking clerkships now in the federal system. This seems to be a, a pattern. Um, in, in any given year on the market, there might be 30 ex-Supreme Court clerks. I say that just so that people understand who's kind of in this marketplace. They're all over. How many? How, why are there so many? There's so many. These are right alums of you know they. And they, because they stack up. It used to be that was a real, that was, that was, again, as I said before, that was all you really needed. But just being a Supreme Court clerk doesn't get you an academic job unless you have some evidence of writing. But it does give the hiring committee some pause to see that on a, on a, on a resume because it's, this, again, an indicia of success in law school and an impressive resume, just like anything else. It's not, it's far from a necessity. Obviously, there's lots of us who've gotten uh, academic jobs without clerking on the Supreme Court, but as you will notice, there are many ex-Supreme Court clerks out there on the faculty, and there's a reason for that. Um, uh, uh, in terms of a district court or state Supreme Court, I think any clerkship is great. Again, it depends what you do with it. So you could go on the state Supreme Court and clerk for state Supreme Court justice, depending on the court, that's, that, that has a certain cachet as well. So, um, so I think um, um, it depends what you do with it and it depends a little bit on the field, but if you're doing anything other than kind of economic based, say corporate tax, some economic based stuff, clerkships are gonna be helpful to the, the academic career. I would also say um, one thing I've noticed in just like talking to individual students about their interest in academia is that um, it's very scary when you're at a place like UVA where overall your professors look super impressive, right? Like every time I look at like, um, like someone like the Dean or like Vice Dean Kendrick, I'm like, oh my gosh, like look at this person, right? It's like a Yale, Yale graduate, Princeton PhD, like got some award with like, it's just like a Guggenheim or something like that. Like, goodness gracious, like how am I ever going to, you know, like this is like a person who was like turned off like the, the shiny, like, like going to grow up to be a law professor assembly line. And I'm like, oh my goodness. But then you realize that a school like UVA, like you came here because your professors are amazing and it's a top 10 school. And so really you're looking at a, um, the professors from a top 10 school. And I would say that academia is um, very much, there are many people in academia who start at, you know, Quinnipiac, right? Or I started teaching at the University of Utah. Um, and it's a school where, uh, it's a career where people tend not to necessarily start and end at the school where they, where they don't end their career at the place where they started. Um, it's more like baseball, uh, where you kind of, you might start at like, you know, 
you might have to like prove your chops and kind of move on up. Um, so it's not super accurate to look at um, the faculty here and think about like the kind of career, the goodies that they've collected from the buffet. It's more helpful, I think, to um, if you just Google, there's something called Prof's blog, and every year they put out a list of entry-level hires. So just look at the places, the schools that are hiring entry-level people, and then you can usually Google like, you know, you know, Jane Smith was hired at, you know, the University of Colorado, and then like look up Jane Smith's CV and see what she has, because that's more in line with what you'll need to have than, you know, looking at someone who, you know, you adore here. Um, yeah, I think that's important to emphasize, which is the range of law schools that are looking for law teachers is, is, is much broader than the range of law schools you maybe were looking at to, to attend. Um, uh, and um, in fact, and those law school teaching jobs are almost the same. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> the people do the same things at Utah and at Quinnipiac where I taught property and legal writing and local yes. law and did writing in the summers. It's the same job. And so the benefits of the job are the same, basically. Um, um, uh, and um, so when you're looking for a teaching job, you're you're just looking for one job. You're not looking for running the, you know, running the whole list of top 10 law schools. That's not going to happen. So you're looking for one job. When I applied, I applied to every law school in the country. Anybody that would, 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 would um, interview me, I interviewed with. That was Same. Quinnipiac, Widener, Iowa, whatever it was, Texas, right? Any place. Um, and so, um, and that's what folks are doing. Then there's what Professor Wang said is there's some mobility after you're in the in the business. People move yes. from, from place to place. But that being said, people have long careers in law schools um, uh, all across the country, and those law schools are are um, are great places to work and, and the, the teaching and the scholarship is basically the same. We're doing the same it's, thing. Yes, it's the same job. Um, yeah. Um, let's see, what else do we have? Um, if you don't get a JD PhD at first, but get a PhD after law school, will you be docked for time out of law school slash age? Age? I kind of doubt it. Like, I feel like, I feel like law faculty tends to be kind of an oldish bunch. And so like anyone age like 40 and under, I want to say like kind of feels like a whippersnapper. Um, I don't think there's like, I don't think there's widespread age discrimination that I have discerned, but um, but in terms of having spent time out of law school, I guess like, I guess like there's a world in which like, if you took, you know, if you practiced for seven years and then you went and got like a history PhD and then you decided to, you wanted to be a law professor, people would be like, why? Like it's been 11 years since you were thinking about the law. But if you went and got a history degree that was specifically about like legal history, for instance, then I think that would tell a more compelling story. And I don't think that would necessarily be a problem. Yeah, it's a little tricky only because the PhD, there is a kind of, um, a, uh, in that example, there's a kind of, they, you're trying to switch careers all of a sudden and there's gonna be some, some skepticism of that. If you were to say clerk and then go back for the PhD, right? Take a year yeah. of clerking, that's probably not a huge problem. 
um, uh, and and might be fine because that PhD gives you a chance to write. Um, yeah. Um, and um, and so we've we've seen some of that where you say you do your JD, you clerk for a year, and and then you apply for a PhD and you go and get that PhD. It depends what the field is in some ways, right? Is this a is this a teched up PhD like an economics PhD where you're doing kind of empirical stuff? Is it a humanities side PhD? Um, yeah. Um, but I wouldn't put a lot of space between those two degrees. I think that's probably not a great idea. But maybe yeah. Plus, like it just it just strings out the amount of time that you're trying to pursue this career that ultimately is. You know, it's a little it's a little hard to land it, right? Like it's it, there's a good amount of luck there, so I don't know that you want to invest like eleven years of your life in hopes of landing it. You want to have a backup. Um, MBA, does an MBA? What do you think? I, I, um, I don't think so, but I don't think so. But I think it could, you know, like an MBA is a little bit of a weirder one, I guess. It's a little bit of a weirder finishing degree. Um, a little bit of a weirder thing to add to your plate. Um, but that said, like um, Professor Geis has an MBA and was a, was a consultant um, instead of a lawyer. And I think that makes him in, like weird interesting. Um, but I think that I think that there's probably for every one of him, there's probably, you know, 30 kind of more traditional candidates. And I, in this case, I don't think traditional is necessarily a bad thing. Um, but but you know, for every thirty traditional candidates, you're gonna, you know, a, an MBA would be cool. Yeah, and again, this is if you the MBA doesn't help you unless you're, I think, unless you're really focused on corporate law, and you'd want that MBA to give you some tech skills because corporate law is a is a has become a more tech heavy kind of so, bringing that to the table is something that that the MBA would. Be helpful if you're super serious about that a phd in economics might be a stronger thing but obviously Great. more time and more challenging or even potentially like some people just take some time and do like um you know training and like machine learning or like statistical analysis or something like that i think that might if you're just thinking like how can i like get the most bang for my buck in a couple of years that's i think that might be a better way to spend that time than an mba um Next one, uh, is it possible to pursue an undergraduate teaching job with just a JD and a few years in practice? And what are the differences? Uh, oh, interesting. And transferable, interesting. And transferable. So my reaction to that is, is depends on what kind of undergraduate teaching you're, you're trying to do. In a research university, it's not really possible. You have to do a PhD to, to get say a job at UVA. Um, there are liberal arts colleges who don't require necessarily a PhD, though many of them probably do, um, yeah, but there may be so. some that don't, and the JD might be sufficient, particularly if you're teaching in a, in a, in a say, a legal studies program. And in fact, I guess, now that I think about it, I know some folks who teach at Wharton, at Penn, the business school part of Penn, in the undergraduate, uh, maybe graduate too, and they just have JDs. So they've come in to the to teach undergrads it's kind of legal studies. They're kind of unique because they are JDs when the the academics around them are are PhDs or MBAs. Um, so you do see a little bit of that. But for undergraduate, I'm not sure um, it's it is I'm not sure it is transferable. I don't know. Thoughts? I think it's very challenging. So I think. 
at one point there was a, there was a, like a legal teaching position at my beloved undergrad Pomona college. And I wanted to apply for it. And I was advised like, they're looking for like a PhD and they in fact hired a PhD. Um, so, um, I think at a lot of like the liberal arts schools, research universities, you're, you're going to have trouble getting a job with just a JD in part because people don't really understand it. Um, like a PhD who gets a PhD in politics has struggled for like, you know, seven years and they understand that feeling. Um, so I think it's really challenging. The, I think that the only place of transferability is as Professor Schreiger said, um, if you teach business law in a business school like Wharton or Indiana or something like that, in a, like, you know, in a business school, you're teaching business students undergrad in the legal studies program that's maybe the only place where you see some movement. And I would argue maybe even just from Wharton, maybe. Yeah, interesting. Like, I don't know that if you taught, like, I don't know that we have a legal studies program here at like McIntyre. Mm -hmm. um, and if we did, I don't know that, I don't know that we would ever look at that. You know, like we would never think about like who at McIntyre would be good to bring over to the law school. I don't think so. Um. What's the breakdown of your time nowadays between scholarship and teaching? And two, what's your favorite and least favorite parts of being a professor? Professor Wang, what do you say to that? Uh, I'm, I think people do it different ways. So I think that I, when I'm teaching during a teaching semester, I will say I spend like 80% of my time on teaching. So, and that broadly means like teaching class. So I teach, I'm teaching four credits this semester. So that means, you know, four hours of class but it's on class, office hours, prep, um, you know, like today, like we have a guest speaker on Monday. So I spent about an hour with our guest speaker, prepping the guest speaker um, and like, you know, um, thinking about class notes. I like do my class notes again. I read all the cases again. Like I would say that one thing that people are always surprised to find is how much time it takes to prep for one hour of class. So it probably takes me like a day to prep for two hours of class. Um, so that's just two days on straight like notes prep. Um, and then the rest of the time, you know, students, that kind of thing. So all of that, right? Um, and then when I'm, and then the rest of the maybe 20% of my time, I guess, I'm spending chugging along very slowly on research projects. So doing things like having calls with my co-authors, talking to my RAs, um, you know, reading, that kind of thing. So, and then during like school breaks, like winter break and summer break, that's when I get the bulk of my research. Um, yeah, I would say, but I mean, maybe that's, in, maybe it's more like 60, 40. Um, but I will say like, I feel like the bulk of my time during what I'm teaching is taken up by teaching. Um, and my favorite part of teaching is all of it. This is like the best job in the whole world. Um, I love the scholarship. I love students. I love teaching. Um, a related question is sometimes people ask me if I work less now that I'm a law professor and I tell them that I work more. I work way more now than when I was, um, than when I was a lawyer. Like on average, I work way more. Um, I once tried to count and I think I bill like a 3000 hour year every year. Um, and my favorite, my least favorite parts of being a law professor are uh, faculty meetings. Because because you get to see me. <laughs> no, it's because I came from a school that had very long faculty meetings and poorly run meetings are like group therapy and everyone talks about like what makes them sad and like 
why are we voting this way? And, and I just like, it just makes me want like to perish in my chair. Like I sometimes I just sit in faculty meetings dreaming of like the giant piranhas that will open up under my chair and eat me. So I no longer have to be there. Um, uh, you know, the time question is a, is a, is a, is a helpful one. You know, much of our time is spent doing scholarship, certainly if you count the summer. So I just spent all summer kind of sitting and writing and reading. You just do a lot of reading and writing. And, uh, you know, if you think about my kids say that, I, you know, I'm just a professional student, right? I write papers. <laughs> so if you are a person who enjoys writing papers, right, you've got to, you got to sort of be ready to do this. Um, uh, and, um, and paper writing takes a long time. The art of writing is hard. The art of getting, of generating ideas, of making sure you're covering the ground, of editing. Uh, there's, I go through 25 drafts of a paper. It's just a lot. Um, uh, and, um, and so that you need big chunks of time to do that. And so, so that's, that's, that's during teaching again, I agree. Professor Wang, there, there, there's a lot of focus on the teaching um, in those semesters that are teaching heavy, and that might be the bulk of the time at that point. There's administrative stuff, there's reading other people's work, there's workshops and keeping up. But in fact, this is what lawyers do too. Lawyers do, at least in certain fields, a lot of writing. They're writing briefs, they're writing memos, they're writing, and they're doing a lot of research in the library. And so it's, it's in some ways, it's, it, there's a kind of a similar thing. Um, um, the difference between academia and being, being in practice is the phone in academia never rings. Nobody's calling you to ask you stuff until later in your career because, uh, but in, in practice, you know, you might have clients who are, who are eager. What is happening is you're interacting with students, which is terrific. That's the best part of the job. Um, is the interaction with the students. And, um, and that's my favorite part of the job. Um, I don't like correcting exams. No one really does like correcting exams, but that's um, that might be the least favorite. Well, um, what about um, doing edits on your papers? Like on a paper that you're like, you're just over it. You're like, I wrote this a year ago. Uh, it's gone through edits. And like, are you serious? Okay, here we go. Read to, it one more time. You have to, you know, the, the provost. The, the I just accidentally turned on my Siri, sorry. <laughs> Help me Siri. The provost, Liz McGill, who's on our faculty and continues to be on our faculty, but is currently the provost. She was the dean at Stanford, but she was, she's, she's on the law school faculty and was a colleague and is a colleague now. But she would say, you know, you just got to put your butt in the chair and you got to do it, right? So writing is not so easy. You got to actually put your butt in the chair and do it and editing and all that stuff is part of that process. So um, I have known folks who really wanted to be academics and then they go become academics. And then the writing uh, is not what they're, they don't, they're not geared up for that. They're not that excited by that. And so I've, I've known folks who've then left the academy um, after, after finding that it wasn't exactly what they wanted to do. Um, uh, um, so you want to just be aware of that, that part of one of the big parts of the job is, is um, the butt in the chair. Um, now that's a big part of a lot of our jobs anyway. So it's, it's, I agree with that. Yeah. Like my, the research that I get done during the teaching semesters are like when I, like they happen at night, right? They happen at night on weekends, like 
Like I just started this thing. I do this every semester with a couple of my friends. We have this like Google Docs spreadsheet where we like have to write a certain number of words a week. And if we don't write it, then we shame each other. Um, so like, this is literally like, if you think like one day you grow up and you're just able to like magically like spend two hours a day writing and then you'll like spend two hours a day getting a latte and then you'll teach a little class and then you'll do more, right? Like, it just doesn't happen like that. It's like, like, I'm like, okay, well later after this, I'm gonna prepare for class and then I'm done preparing for class. I'm gonna like, maybe I'll do like a couple hours of writing and then it'll be like three in the morning. Time passes. Yeah. Um, what kind of resources are available to us as alumni when we decide to go on the market? Uh, all of the resources that we have at, at, at UVA's disposal. The main resource is we have a committee that is, uh, is uh, our job is, and we're members of that committee, uh, the Academic Placement Committee. And what we want you to do as alums, when, when you are starting to think about possibly teaching or transitioning out of, out, of, uh, out of a legal practice job, a firm or otherwise into a fellowship, we want you to reach out to us, contact Career Services. They will then reach out to whoever's on the Academic Placement Committee, and then we will help you get that fellowship. We will help you then get the, the and then when you go on the market, we will, on the teaching market, we will help you put together your materials for the teaching market, make sure you have recommenders, and then we will moot you. That is, we, we, we do regularly, we've, we've done a bunch of these. We're doing one tomorrow where we do a moot interview, a moot 20 minute interview for you. And then we do, if you get a job talk, we do, a, do an hour moot job talk for you. So we're available. We're also available before that to read drafts of your work, although what we will probably do is point you to somebody who's an expert in the field in on the faculty. So those are the people to reach out to, but we can help you, we can facilitate that conversation too. So our, our hope is to get, we don't have a huge number of UVA people that go on the teaching market every year. We've, we've often had, you know, between seven and 10 maybe in any given year, but we'd like to increase that number. We think our students are great and we want them to be on the market and we think we can we can help place them in pretty good jobs. We're, we're doing okay. Not everybody gets a job every time they go on the market, but I think our, our, our students who have thought about this and are, are pretty um, um, geared up to do this um, do very well. We hire our own at Virginia. For example, we have a lot of Virginia graduates who, who work for us uh, or, or on the law faculty. Um, um, and and our, our, our graduates get hired elsewhere too uh, on, a, on, a, on a regular basis. So that's, we, we want to we make sure that there are resources available to all of you um, when you do when you do decide to go in the market. We would like to talk to you. We would like we, like you know when you probably the next thing you're going to do is go out for a clerkship or a firm or whatever, um, and then you know probably in like two to five years you will say, man, what was that stuff that they said about being a law professor again? Um, we would like to talk to you at that point before you start like kind of groping around in the dark. We'd like to have like a 15 minute conversation with you and remind you that like it's time to start thinking about a paper or, or like whatever, or like this is how you apply. These are the main fellowships that are hot right now. And we know people there and we can call you, call them for you, et cetera, et cetera. That's what we'd like to do. Um, the other kind of thing I would encourage you to do is really think about research projects while you're here, bounce them off with people 
your professors uh, while you are here, um, in part because I think you still get free Westlaw while you're here. So just try to do some of that research while you while you have free Westlaw. Um, so other questions. I think we we've, we've got all the ones in the chat. Are there folks who have questions? I know we're a little over time because we started late too. Um, again, my my apologies for that. Kimberly? Um, hi, professors. Uh, just quickly on that note on research in school, um, how developed, how mature should an idea be before you pitch it to a professor? Like, should you go through an entire preemption check? Like, how, um, how fully baked should these ideas be before you pitch them as like an independent research project, do you think? Not baked at all. <laughs> I mean, I guess it depends. Um, so students who come to me with a kind of say, I want to do an independent study or an independent research project or something, sometimes come with pretty vague topic areas. Like I want to write about, I don't know, housing or zoning or local government power in various ways, or I do religion too. So that, um, um, it's a little helpful to come in um, with at least some thinking about it, right? Oh, I've looked around. I see there's some notes on this. Is this, but a lot of times that professor can immediately say to you, oh, this has been written on, or this hasn't been written on, or this is where you need to look, or don't write about that, write about this other thing. And then you're off to the races without having wasted six months trying to. So I think using your, you don't want to come in like, tell me a topic. You want to have a couple of ideas right in your head. So you can say, well, I have, a, I have two or three ideas. What do you think? Um, that shows that you've made some investment. But I think at the end of the day, they're going to be more helpful to you earlier rather than spending a lot of time um, trying to figure out, you know, but a little research isn't a bad thing, I think. What do you think, Professor Huang? I, yeah, I think, I think this, the, like, so the worst way to go in is to be like, I would like to write a paper. Do you have any ideas? And I'm like, friend, if I had ideas, I would be writing them. Like, I like, I'm always looking for new ideas. Do you have any ideas? I would like to write them. Um, so I think the easiest way to do this, I, I, I think the most successful students have had, have come in two varieties. So variety one is like, I would really like to work with you. I really want to write about local government. Um, in particular, I'm really worried about like, you know, gentrification or like, you know, segregation in small cities. And um, can I work with you this semester on this project? And then Professor Schreiber will probably be like, yeah, that's fine. Why don't you come up with 10 preliminary ideas and bring them to my office and we'll talk about them. Um, so like, kind of like general subject area thing. Or alternatively, I sometimes have students who are like, I would like to write about Delaware appraisal cases uh, from 2000 five to 2010. And I'm like, okay, then that's fine too. So you either do like a quite a bit of research on like one topic and you're sure it's preemptive preemption checked and all of that. Um, or you do relatively little, like, you know, maybe like three hours of generic Googling um, and you come with a lot of potential ideas. So like, you know, maybe an hour of Googling per idea to just see if like somebody has written literally the same paper. Yeah, and this is why it's doing, doing, say, taking a seminar in which there's a substantial paper requirement can be a helpful way to structure writing. And then that substantial paper, if it's only 30 pages, let's say you can expand that. You can then stack some research on top of that. I've had students who do a 
substantial paper and I say, you should expand this or you should write the second version of this. Um, and we can do that together also, right? And we can expand it and do, do more on it. But that kind of classroom component gives you a bunch of, a bunch of the literature. So it's helpful to you um, because you're reading law review articles at the same time that you're formulating, you know, with some guidance in the classroom at the same time that you're formulating your paper, your paper topics and ideas. It's not necessary, but it can, it can be helpful to do it as obviously as an adjunct to a class. Again, I've had tons of students who come in and they're like, uh, let's, let's work together on some, some, some of these areas and, and they produce terrific stuff. Yeah. And if it's, if it's really good, I'll, I'll try to, I'll try to co-author with them by stealing, steal their, there will be hop-ons <laughs> as they say in arrested development. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, but that's fun too, to co-author with students. I've done a little bit of that recently that I hadn't done before. And that's been really great too. Um, a fun idea I've never thought of as a student was co-authoring with a, with a fellow classmate, maybe. I think that might be fun. Like, so the first like three years of my career, I did not really co-author. I did like one co-authored project. And then now I've switched to like, I don't know, maybe half my projects are co-authored and I really like it. Like, I think I'm a social person. I think sitting by myself is not like, that makes, doesn't make me that happy. As a transactional lawyer, you're usually bouncing like, you work on the draft and then your friend works on the draft and then you work on the draft and then they work on the draft. And that's kind of how I do a lot of my research now when I kind of like it. So if you have a friend and you're kind of like, you guys are having a chat thread about like this dumb thing that happened in the seminar and how you think it really should be this way, then maybe think about writing a short paper about it. Just putting both your names on it and slapping it together and seeing what happens. All right, so we're coming to the end. We are. Other questions? Okay. So you should feel free to reach out to us if you have yeah. questions. If you have questions, email. We're available. The committee is available. Um, thanks, thanks for coming. Tell your friends and neighbors that we're we're looking for other folks and neighbors who want to pursue pursue this kind of uh, uh, career path. I, I'm always surprised. Um, that more folks are interested. It is, as Professor Huang said, the best job in the world by far. Uh, and um, I've had yes. some happy jobs. Uh, uh, um, uh, uh, so, um, so I encourage it. I encourage it. And again, don't be dis dismayed by the qualifications of various folks that you see who are professors. It is true. They're highly qualified folks. But there are lots of ways into academia, and there are lots of we want to be realistic about it, certainly. But um, there are lots of levels at which you can be you can teach, and those jobs are good jobs too. So I encourage you all, as you're going through, we're available to answer questions, and then as you go out in the world, make sure you come back and talk to us uh, if you're still interested.